Welcome to Fashion Forum, a podcast brought to you by the British Fashion Council. I'm Caroline Rush, Chief Executive. Today we bring you a series of conversations highlighting the relationship between the creative industries, celebrating not only fashion designers, but also the broader creative community, all of whom play a vital role in our industry's culture and reputation, promoting British creativity on a global scale. Hi, I'm Alex Fury, Fashion Features Director of Another Magazine and Men's Critic of the Financial Times newspaper. And on this episode of Fashion Forum, I'm delighted to be speaking to Stella McCartney, one of this year's honorees at the Fashion Awards 2020. Stella is the industry trailblazer for sustainable practices in fashion and the first to champion many of the processes that have now percolated the world of fashion, from fabric innovation and circularity with local communities. She has raised the bar for the industry as a whole, with creativity and sustainability shaping the brand's DNA, and has constantly demonstrated that sustainable practices can be seamlessly integrated into luxury and creative brands. Hi Stella, how are you? I'm very good Alex, how are you? I'm good. I'm really thrilled that I can talk to you because I we've interacted, I've been to your shows, but I've never actually interviewed you, so this is a first for me as well. I actually wanted to start off with you, Stella, at the very beginning, um, because from what I've read and what I know about you, unlike a lot of fashion designers, you knew very early on that you wanted to work in fashion. You knew you wanted to be a fashion designer. Is that right? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, really early on, like from some of my earliest memories, actually. And um, I think it was that I grew up kind of, observing very much as a child and I had this kind of strange upbringing in a sense that one minute I was on an organic farm in Mm -hmm. Scotland and just with my mum and dad and siblings and like animals and then the next minute we were on tour and they I was watching them on stage with hundreds of thousands of people kind of applauding them and I was very sort of visually aware from an early age um and I also kind of that contrast between like you know like fat corduroys and you know Argyle knits and then like kind of glam rock that was kind of that period at the time so I always kind of was very clear in in my observations of uh, wardrobe and also there were a lot of at that time there were loads of amazing old Hollywood films on telly as well so I was sort of really drawn to the beauty of all of those old black and white films Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah so I knew early on I knew early on that I wanted to do something creative, but I knew early on that I wanted to go into into fashion. And then I made my first kind of vegan jacket when I was 12. So it was before, you know, it was early. And then I started doing work placement at 15 and, you know, I, I sort of didn't stop. What, what was your family's reaction? Because obviously, you know, as you've said, it's an incredible family of creatives, not only your parents, but also your siblings. But what was their kind of point of view on on fashion? Did they encourage it or were they kind of trepidatious at all about that as a career path? They weren't. My mum and dad were always really sort of encouraging. They made us all feel like we could do whatever we, we wanted to do. Um, but I do remember my mum, at some stage when it was looking like I was seriously meaning what I was saying, she did sort of take me aside and say, look, are you sure about this? Are you sure you want to do fashion? Because her relationship with fashion was, you know, she had her own experiences of it, especially being the wife of a Beatle, essentially, yep. and, and sort of her own sense of style was so unique and, for me, so inspiring. But she'd gotten, you know, it was a tough reaction that the media had with her and she was aware that 
it was a it was an intense industry to to get into so i remember her kind of taking me aside at some stage and saying are you sure because this is not an easy industry and there's a lot of backstabbing and there's a lot of you know there's it's a difficult group if you mm -hmm. like to kind of get into and i think as it was and now i'm a mum of of four so i understand a, a protective conversation that she sort of had with me but once um there was no you know that it, it was clear to her that i wasn't giving up on it she was then and, and they were both very supportive and helped me get great work placements and you know i would be i remember if we were on a flight for example um and i remember once jean muir was on the flight and i i didn't know who she was and my mum sort of went look if you actually mean it you should go and talk to that woman you know she's a fashion designer and i like, had to pluck up the courage and go and sit with jean muir for hours it was pretty terrifying if any of you have seen jean muir if you're a kid, <laughs> not the most kind of warming of, of chicks to hang out with. And so, you know, once I was clear that I wanted to do it, then they were really seen that they were very supportive. Um, you, you obviously studied at St. Martin's, um, but before that, you, as you said, you worked with different designers. Um, obviously, as pretty much everybody knows, I'm a complete Lacroix obsessive. So I, you worked with Lacroix on his first own label, Haute Couture Show. Yeah. That's so great that you love Christian Lacroix. Yeah, that was, you know, I was so blessed. At 15, I went um, and, you know, that was sort of the privilege of my upbringing that my mum and dad managed to sort of know these people. And I was lucky enough to go and do some work placement in Paris at 15. And I went to, I worked on his first couture show with him. And he was so generous. I mean, it blew my brains because I went to a local comprehensive school in the countryside. And then all of a sudden I was like in Paris and, it was funny, like on the first days I went there and it took, I was like an hour and a half late because I could not find where it, where it was. I couldn't find the studio. I was run, wandering around Paris, panicking and panicking. And then the next day I realized that literally his studio was opposite the hotel I was staying in. Like yeah. <laughs> stupid mistakes. But um, it was amazing. I mean, to see that level of design and creativity and like, oh, I mean, it like, I mean, it gives me goosebumps to just to even be in the same room and that creative, you know, juices and fabrics and oh my God, the embroideries. I remember I would go to Lassage and pick up embroideries for the show and it was just like, oh, it was like another world. And um, so yeah, I was, I was very, very, very privileged to experience that. I think that's been a huge, you know, it was a big change for me when I got to do that. And you also work with, with Edward Sexton Mm -hmm. which I think is, in a way, kind of, for me, connects a lot with, with certainly, I, I guess it's both of those worlds when you first started your label, because it was about kind of th that sort of couture quality, that element of luxury, embroidery, delicacy, but yeah. also really super sharp tailoring and quite sort of, you know, mannish tailoring for women, yeah. which was something very new at that point in the 90s. Yeah, and that... Um... I think that's really sort of summarizes probably the complete opposing elements to everything that I do that I can't really shake. Like it's just in my DNA. And I think it's possibly growing up with these kind of masculine and feminine draws in my life or country versus city or, um, and yeah, working with those kind of couturiers. And then I was, I was missing the more masculine side to my kind of taste and also the the knowledge of how to really get deep into learning about Savile Row tailoring and and you know I loved my years at St Martin's it was like the best time ever but it was so creative it was such an incredible explosion of like you know the more you couldn't wear something the better you were at your job 
And so yeah. I was a little bit always rooted in wanting to do clothes that people could wear, that were actually kind of, you know, you could actually bring them into your life and not just see them on the pages of an editorial. Um, and so for me to go to Edward at that time was amazing. It was just like the opposite world because I'd go down and, you know, to Savile Row and, and we'd be with all these guys and all smoking fags and drinking beer and working on, you know, these incredible suits. But it was just... They were like, they were like kind of, for me, it was more like working with like the bricklayers of an, you know, in an architectural firm. They were the guys that were getting stuff done. And, you know, I was there for, I did that for three years and I barely learned how to set a sleeve head. So, I mean, it just shows the level of, of you know, incredible work that they do. You mentioned St. Martin's then, and I wondered for you, how important was St. Martin's kind of, you know, what did the college teach you? How pivotal was your education there? What was the experience like? I think just getting into St. Martin's, you know, was just such an achievement mm. for me. I felt really proud that I'd gotten in and I kind of was always quite, um, you know, I, I was quite self-motivated. So I got in because I sort of got the form filled it out. Like I was quite independent and um, I was just so thrilled to be there, especially, at, you know, it was just after Lee had left and, mm -hmm. and you know, Galliano had been there. And it was just such the legacy of, of who had gone there was so, so huge. And so I was just thrilled to get in. And I was also in Soho and I was living in London. And I was like, oh, you know, Soho was like, at that time it was there and it was just grotty and kind of, you know, so cool. It was so great. The energy of going in to the college, we had the art, the art students on the top floor and the sculpture students down in the basement. And it was just great. And I was with all these kind of, you know, brilliant young talents. And I met so many great people. I made great friendships there it's where I met Phoebe and where we know and, and I loved it I and I also hated it all at the same time <laughs> which again comes to my opposites but you know I needed it was so high fashion that I had a bit of an allergy to that side I was a bit like you know I remember one day going in and this girl had wrapped her mannequin up in um, pattern cutting paper and you couldn't see any of it and um, I was like what's going on she's like I don't want anyone to you know steal my blue and I was a bit like whoa that's kind of intense you know but that kind of stuff's great like it was great but it was extreme and also it's it's interesting because then when you came out and you were doing your kind of early presentations in London it was very much you know about dressing kind of you and dressing your group and that whole you know kind of dressing a person it wasn't about kind of these big sort of conceptual statements it was about something very real and, and very you know, of London in that moment. And I always found that really interesting, that there was such a reality to what you were doing. I mean, I think I, realistically, as also I was one of, there weren't many female designers then, hmm. certainly in my age group. And, um, you know, it was, a, I was literally just wanting to wear my clothes and I was wanting all my mates to wear my clothes. And it just sort of, I, people found me. Like I didn't actively go out I was very naive about the industry. I didn't know who any of the journalists were. I didn't know about any of the sort of hiring of, of head designers. Or, you know, I knew nothing, really, really nothing. And it was an amazing time because I left and immediately um, a store in Tokyo in Japan wanted to buy my clothes. And I was like, oh my God, like there was no training at St. Martin's as to how to step out into the real world. Like it just wasn't a conversation. And so I kind of learned really quickly and, um, but it was great. I mean, it was a great time because now, obviously, I'm sure everyone watching now, there'll all be all different, many different courses to talk about the fashion industry. And then there were like a handful. And, you know, you didn't, you had a knitwear course and a design course and an illustration course. 
but there was no kind of marketing or, you know, a sustainable course. My God, no, you know, there was nothing that didn't break down the industry. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because you, you did establish your label straight out of college. Um, and something that I found really interesting when I was kind of backpedaling through my research was a piece in the New York Times from 24 years ago um, by the amazing journalist Amy Spindler, where she questioned you if the buttons on a jacket were real horn. And obviously they weren't. But I wondered how natural was it for you to embed your ethics in your clothes straight from the start? And also how difficult was it at that point? Because now people are a little bit, you know, people are more in tune and are more aware, largely thanks to a lot of the work that you've done. But back in the mid 90s, people really were not. No, I mean, I was definitely ridiculed. And Amy was probably doing that to try and catch me out, which I think, <laughs> thank God they weren't real horn. And, you know, I, I know that I searched so hard to find a non-real horn. It's yeah. so much easier. Well, then, now it's a little less so, as you say, but, you know, then you can only get real horn. Mm. You know, so it's those kind of challenges were there for me from day one. Um, it was easy in a sense that I was never going to do anything different to that. You know, it was not like I went, I didn't go, oh, how, you know, I wasn't marketeering or I wasn't kind of overthinking it. It wasn't like I went, oh, you know, should I do vegan shoes or should I do leather shoes? It was just like, well, I'm, I don't eat animals. Why on earth would I make a bag out of them? Like that's yeah. so hypocritical. And so from day one, I at least knew there was no compromise. And I've always said, actually, I feel, you know, it is, I believe, a privilege to come from my background in the sense that I didn't have to compromise for that. And I was so lucky to kind of know who I was and what I wanted to say. And, and you know, and I, I was lucky in the fact that I got a job, essentially, have, with those kind of beliefs. But um, it was definitely ridiculous at the time. I was like a, a complete eco weirdo. And I was definitely made fun of. And, you know, especially on top of it, my dad was Paul McCartney. So all my headlines were, you know, oh, with a little help from my friends. Like, it was always like an album yeah. title. Um, so, but I think it was always interesting in that my work was doing really well. So yeah. aside from sort of my ethics, people really wanted the clothes and I was very ready to wear heavy on, you know, people really wanted the ready to wear, mm -hmm. um, which is now even still quite unheard of. Most, most luxury houses are built on handbags and shoes. And, you know, it's a miracle that we have a luxury house with handbags and shoes selling that are all vegan. You know, mm -hmm. that's why it not, doesn't exist. But, um, it was definitely something that I knew I wanted to do and it was, it has continued to be a challenge in my, you know, profession for sure to work that way. Well, it's also interesting at that point in time because you, you had kind of Peter and the I'd rather go naked than wear fur and, you know, if you pardon me talking like this, kind of anti-fur was fashionable in the early 90s when you started was when people started wearing real fur again i know i remember at that point when all of a sudden it was there was this big debate over oh is Mon mongolian lamb really fur can't you wear mongolian lamb that's fine and then pretty much there was a season of mongolian lamb and then it was fox fur onwards so right alex it's so nice to have someone that sort of is that intelligent in a sense to kind of know it though because it was really frustrating to watch from my point of view you'd have this amazing bailey campaign where i'd rather go naked than wear remember with that fur yeah, 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 down yeah. the road the blood and it was so rebellious it was so punk rock and everything was brilliant about british fashion and like it was so brilliant 
And then shortly, it was like, okay, we're all kind of into that. And then overnight, it was like, well, actually, no, it's not like, actually, it's really cool to rebel from doing the right thing. Yeah. Actually, we're, you know, fashion's so cool that, you know, fuck you, I'm going to wear fur. Excuse me to all the kids watching. But, <laughs> and I always found that so disappointing. And I would fight. I remember I'd just been interview after interview going, it's not rebellious to wear fur. It's so conventional to wear fur. Everyone's wearing fur. Yeah. No, like it's rebellious and punk rock and fashionable and kick ass to be doing fake for like this is the irreverence that we're known for like this is we as fashion designers should be fighting against the kind of you know the norm yeah and so it was it was deeply frustrating and it's really interesting to now watch fingers crossed we have gone into another it's only been actually now that we've come back into this oh for yeah, fur, yeah. And there's been a whole moment, you'll, you'll know this very well, where it was like a couple of seasons there, it was like, oh, faux fur, it's funny, it's colorful, like it looks like fake fur, and it was, all became fashionable again. But I'm hoping it's stuck, I'm hoping. But then, you know, look at the globe and look at different markets. I know that China, I was speaking to somebody the other day, China is massive on real fur, and these mm -hmm. 50 million minks that got culled because of COVID, you know, it's like, what? When the hell were 50 million minks still getting killed? Like there's, I think there's a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, connected with that. So you, I mean, you've worked with three huge companies. Obviously, you started with, with Chloe in 1997, then moved to the Gucci group, which became PPR and Kering, and now with LVMH. And those latter two do have a focus on leather goods. I wonder, was there ever, and I'm sure there was, so how much of a pressure was there for you to kind of compromise? Did people, were people super respectful or were people kind of being like, oh, go on, do a leather handbag. Oh, we'll do something recycled. You know, was there, was there pressure from people to try and make you compromise to fit a mold, to make more money? It's a great question. And it reminds me of sort of what I've, you know, the journey I've been on. Yeah, you know, I, when I, um, no, when I founded my own brand, it was definitely like, guys, this is how I work. And if you're interested in this, because they came to me, you know, Tom and Domenico came to me um, with the idea of me doing my own brand. And I was like, well, you know, I don't do this. So if you're coming to me, you've accepted that, right? Like, you know, with that comes a set of, you know, realities that might not be pretty for how you normally work. Mm -hmm. um, and to their credit, they were like, yep, still want to do this. And um I think what's been so interesting for me is, and it's such a big part of how I work as a businesswoman, as well as a fashion designer, is that I'm determined to show the fashion industry that this is a, 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 this is a business model that can work. And that I can, if I can keep my brand going through not using leather, not using fur, not using feathers, not using PVC, like, you know, really pushing and pushing and pushing every day. If I can still have this brand after what will be 20 years, we can get through COVID, you know, there's many brands that have worked with leather and fur and PVC for, you know, more than 20 years and they haven't survived. So I'm sort of, I'm determined to stand shoulder to shoulder, I think. And that's where I think design is so important because I think no matter what I'm making it out of, if I'm designing crap, I don't think anyone cares. You know, I think just now people might come with a conscious consumption, but it's so relative, it's such a relatively new conversation and concept for a consumer. Mm -hmm. um, but I definitely have had over, you know, I've, I've 
I could definitely be a bigger business if I hadn't have worked in, in that kind of conscious and mindful way, for sure. And so I've had moments where, you know, I've had people that I used to work with that have taken me into their office and said, look, are you sure we can't just reconsider making leather bags? Come on, you know, like, this would be better for business, um, which has always been kind of funny to me. But I've had those moments for sure. And the thing is, you know, we've, we've been really lucky. Like we have a really strong accessories business. We have our Falabella bag that's completely vegan. It's using recycled, you know, plastic bottles in the lining. It's got an aluminum chain that's completely recyclable. And yet it gets ripped off on a beach in Sardinia. Yeah. And it's kind of a miracle whether it was leather. Actually, in, in they're, they're made in real leather when they're on the beach. I was going to say, it must be like, it must be... <laughs> It kind of backs up what you were saying, which is like, well, this is a great design because someone's ripping off really horrendously and in a way I really disagree with. Yeah. There's a, a, a degree of flattery, you know, copying is the sincerest form. Yeah. I mean, I remember when we first started getting copied and I remember my then CEO was so excited. And I was like, what do you mean? This is not <laughs> exciting. And he was so excited that we were getting copied. And we have it, you know, our shoes, we have our Elise shoe. We have like these quite iconic pieces actually. Yeah. And not none of them, are, you know, they're all cruelty free. And, and it's, you know, it's a really, but it is a really hard way of working. I'm not going to pretend. I went into the fashion industry when I was younger and I really, and this conversation wasn't really there because nobody yeah. made the connection between animal agriculture and the environment. Um, so it was purely ethical from my point of view. But I was, even before that, I knew, went into fashion because I was so interested in how people wear fashion, how it makes us feel better about ourselves, how it makes us feel worse, how we can feel intimidated, how we can feel it was a reflection of who we are. And I found that so powerful. And that's what made me want to be a fashion designer as much mm. as the creative side. And so now I feel like this for me, it's like I couldn't do what I do if I didn't have that underlying kind of challenge every day. I just wouldn't find it as fulfilling, I don't think. And it's also, I think, I don't think you actually get enough credit from people, including myself. I don't think I have given you enough credit for your ability to build an accessories business without any of the usual kind of signifiers, the usual markers, any of the usual processes that people build a successful accessories business through. And it's yeah. also something that, what you know, when you went into fashion, the, they didn't exist. There weren't things, there weren't kind of, you know, besides sort of Hermes and Gucci, as people that made handbags, there weren't, you know, brands didn't have handbag lines. Brands didn't have leather goods lines. They weren't as important as they are now. The whole industry has changed over the last kind of 25 years. And, and was, to be able to resist it is, yeah. you know, is... I mean, it's a miracle and it's madness. It's mad. If, I, if I'd stopped to think about it, I'd, it's meant it's madness. And I mean, especially when I started, you've got to remember that I was working because I was part of um, the Gucci group then, or now parent. I had access to all of the same factories in Italy. So mm -hmm. my product was like for like, as well made, as luxurious, went through all the same rigorous testing and still does today, but all of those luxury bags that you mentioned go through. Yeah. So, but I had, it was like there was one fake leather available in one color. Mm -hmm. So I was like, uh, and none of the machinists had ever worked with fake leather, which is a completely different tension, malleable, like it's completely different to real leather. So we had to literally retrain and rewire everyone's you know people were resistant not only people resistant in the, the media but people were resistant out of just the sort of history of how to make a bag in italy yeah. they were like what do you mean we're not using the finest baby calf or you know so we were up against not only sourcing 
having some colors, having something that was nice to work with, but also to sort of retrain and re you know, readjust people's mindset. And we've had to do that the whole way through. I'm still fighting the fight. Was, I wondered kind of talking about that because I, I kind of want to run through this because for your last spring summer show, the spring summer 2020 show, you put a fact sheet out that essentially said everything you'd been doing over the last 20 years. And I, and I think probably most people had no idea of the kind of the lengths and breadths you'd been going to, which is you don't use PVC, um, you use organic cotton, you use recycled polyester, you use regenerated nylon. Now that sounds kind of, you know, it, lots of people are doing that, but you were doing yeah. it kind of five years ago. You were doing it before anyone else was considering any of these kind of things. Yeah. Um, how, was there kind of sort of a hit list that, you know, were, were you kind of looking or was it just at, the more you did things, the more you realised we can, we have to try and make this better? I wonder, you know, how exactly that happened. Was it, were people approaching you with things? Was it you fighting other people to try and get them to recycle? It's a mixture, it's a great question because you, it, what happens when you're working this way, you just, it's like you've opened up a whole box of, you know, you, you can't stop. So the minute you go, okay, I'd like organic cotton, then you go, oh, how are they farming the organic cotton? Yeah. Is it, you know, is it good labor practice? Is the soil being disrupted? We look now more, even one step deep into regenerative farming, which is not, you know, it goes beyond just organic. You're looking at the sublayer of where the CO2 emissions are trapped. And like, you know, once you start working this way, you can't really stop. And it's, you know, you, you, and you, and also we're not perfect. You know, we did that. We haven't done, you know, I did that fact sheet because I felt like the world of fashion was ready to have that information. Mm -hmm. Like you say, we've been doing many of those things for years. We stopped using PVC in 2010 and, um, you know, a lot of it. But it basically, the minute you open up the can of worms, you just sort of, you can't stop. And and, and sometimes you we haven't solved it yet. You yeah. know, like, and, and, you know, I'm still working on things. So I'm like, oh, that's not good, not happy, you know. And you start to create this monster. Like, for example, we use, obviously, faux fur, mm -hmm. developed and exclusively... Um, worked with cobra which is because also the the meat bodies as you know and the sheepskin bodies and the leather bodies and the fur bodies they're they're massively powerful individual yeah. bodies like the milk body you know they're these are institutions that are run and and financed and and they're you know they're they don't want to see their industry go which i understand but so there's this sort of you know this kind of push out there with the fur industry to be like, oh, well, fake fur is worse for the environment and fur is more natural. So then you go, okay, well, no, that's not true. The, you know, the tanning and the chemicals and the killing of the animal and the deforestation, and that's like 26 times, you know, more damaging than a faux fur to the plant. So then, but then you're like, well, faux fur isn't perfect yeah. because there's a, there are some, you know, oil-based ones in there and it's, you know, it's not great. So then we worked with these guys Cobra and developed one that is also plant-based and so but you know it's only the fur is like that thick so then you're limited you kind of so it's a really fascinating way to work you're kind of you you've always got these challenges and limitations but I'm always looking at it as if that's a positive thing and that I'm kind of never take no for an answer and mm -hmm. but a lot of people come to us as well and answer to a question we're lucky a lot of we're the go-to brand for this conversation yeah. so a lot of new young tech people come to us and we're also constantly searching and out there and, and having these conversations so 
you know, we work with, um, you know, Milo, who we're working developing a mycelium faux leather. And so that'll be a big exclusive for us that we're trying to work on developing some mushrooms. And then we were like, we've worked with Evernew, which are an amazing tech company that take waste and they're completely circular. So we're trying to, we've just done this thing called Stellaware, where we're also engineering, which is like 99% zero free. So we're just constantly kind of all in the room, really, and challenging it. Um, I also wonder, in terms of the consumer, do you think, you touched on this a little bit earlier, do you think now people are coming to you because you, you, offer such a variety of because you are so sustainable because you are so ethical because it is all embedded in do you think people are attracted to that more now than they used to be and you're certainly very I was really struck when I went into your store how you're very transparent with your labeling which a lot of people aren't you know you say when things are organic you say you know there's a label on your organic cotton t-shirt saying that they use 70% less water than other cotton alternatives. Do you find that now people are, are being drawn to that? It's what kind of people are demanding. I mean, I, do, I hope so. I, I think it's hard for me to tell because, you know, I, I've had somebody asked me that a few years ago and I was, I wouldn't have said that it did make any difference because, you know, at the end of the day, I think people, you know, they're going to look at the price, they're going to look at the product, they're going to look at what if it were, you know, you've got so many options to buy, why would you buy that? You know, there's so many other questions. Um, but I think there might be a shift, I'm hoping, that, that coming especially out of this pandemic where people are like, you know, this is how I live, this is how I eat, this is how I travel, this is my choices in my belief systems. Can I apply that to the fashion industry? Do I have to sacrifice and get a kind of hempy looking handbag when really I want a really great timeless chic handbag. Yeah. You know, I think that there might be, I'm hoping there'll be a shift. And I certainly have a very loyal following of like, you know, vegetarian kind of animal rights, you know, quite activists, you know. Mm -hmm. but, um, but I think it is important, as you say, to tell the story with transparency, because again, we don't do everything, some things we do conventionally. And so, you know, and, and telling that story, it's always been a balance for me to try not to ram my belief systems down other people's throats. Like, you know, nobody wants to be told what, you know, how to live their life. Yeah. And fashion is mean, supposed to be fun and escapism. Like, how much of this do you really want to know? Well, I was very struck when, um, kind of for the audience, Stella spoke with a group of journalists after her spring 2021 film aired in October. And the really interesting question you asked us is, do, you know, do you kind of grill other designers about sustainability the way you will grill me about it? Yeah. Um, and five years ago, honestly, we would have said no. But today it has become such a kind of huge part of the fashion conversation at every level that kind of the first question journalists are asking designers backstage or this season over Zoom is, you know, what's the sustainability? Is this recycled? What's this? What's that? What are you doing to, you know, what what measures are you taking within your company? Yeah. And I wonder, do you find it rewarding that having been kind of fighting against that stream for so long, you know, how, how rewarding is it, I guess, that the industry has shifted towards your way of thinking? It, you know, it, the thing is, I've got to remove my ego from that question. <laughs> Because it's not people that have said that, point, oh, you know, oh, do you feel like I told you so? Or like, you know, like, oh, you know, I can't go there. I think it's rewarding if the world shifts to this in every industry. Like it's rewarding for all of us. It's not about me. 
we're all going to benefit if we yeah. can all consume in this way or just be a little bit more aware of it. You guys are, are fundamental, Alex. Like you say, you are asking those questions. That is so great. Like that's a real shift. And that's, you know, if you guys have the information, can you really grill them without telling them off or kind of, you know, getting into a kind yeah. of an area where you're like trying to trip them up? Because I think there is a huge amount of greenwashing, we all know. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, even I'm kind of like the word sustainable is so like just, you know, overly used to a point where I'm like, can somebody define what this word even means? I mean, I remember over maybe like 15 years ago, I did an organic skincare range and it was just so like, nobody even knew what the word organic meant. And I remember working on the formulas and they'd be like, oh, this is natural. And I was like, so what does the word natural mean? Yeah. And they're like, well, and you know, it's 98% and you can get it. It's almost like you can get away with it. All these, you know, I'm look, I'm very lucky that for whatever reason, I've, this is the way I come at it. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't, I don't want it to make me better or worse than anyone else. And I, I would love it if more people joined for the right reasons, because I think you can all, you know, everyone can offset their show and pay someone else to plant trees through an agency. But, you know, do you, you know, you got to question how you're making stuff mm -hmm. as well. I was going to say, connected with that, and I'm not trying to get you to say bad things about people, I swear. But does it ever frustrate you that you're kind of expected to sort of lead the way? And, you know, you, it's never kind of anyone phoning you up and be, being like, hey, we've been using this really amazing recycled rayon and maybe you want to use it. It always seems like you're sort of, you've been doing it before everybody else and then everyone else is like, oh, great, we'll use that now. Yeah, no, I definitely haven't had that phone call yet. But you know what? I'm happy to do it. I, I, I'm secretly kind of excited and I feel honored that I'm, I'm the one that has the information, you know, and I'm happy to share it. I want to encourage everyone to do it. I'm really thrilled that students are watching now and I really want them to feel like this is how they can start because I think what I see mostly is all of my peers are so far down the road of owning crocodile farms and crocodile, mm -hmm. like leather houses are almost embedded in their business. And yeah. how yeah. on earth do they know how to almost like press the rewind button? They can't get their heads around it. My answer is something's better than nothing. Just make, you know, like we did our vegan Stan Smiths with, mm -hmm. with Adidas and they're a great collaborator of mine and they're very kind of sustainably minded. But it took me a while to make them see we could make a vegan shoe in the tradition when they normally made it in leather. So, you know, one little thing makes a huge difference. But what I, I find one of the big challenges I have in working this way is, um, and I've said this before, but, you know, that you're penalized, essentially, like financially. If you want to grow your business, it's in a sense you're penalized if you want to work in, in a better way. Um, I export my um, non-leather goods into America and I can get taxed up to 30% more for having it because it's not leather so 30% like we all know like that's a lot if you got a 30% discount on my bags guys you'd be thrilled right so it's a huge hit that we take and I don't put it on my customer I put it in my margin <laughs> and if I put a slither literally a slither of pig's leather on that same product I would be exempt of the tax so things like that it's like I want the people watching to like get if you believe in this way of working, like fight and write to governments and say that taxation needs to go. This is, you know, I want to be incentivized to work this way. We should, I should get incentivized rather than penalized. Yeah. I wanted to ask, kind of connected with that, because I've 
talked with a, quite a lot of students over, you know, as they said, I, I did a um, scholarship thing for Dior. I, I did something connected with Chanel for, for Central St. Martins. And, you know, you just, I'd see a lot of students. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of part of the magazine thing. You see a lot of students. And the thing that's really struck me, I would say actually over the past kind of three to four years is how much sustainability comes up in their conversation, way more than actual, you know, sort of bigger designers. There's a lot of talk about sustainability, about using waste, um, uh, about using dead stock fabrics, things like that. And I wondered, do you have any kind of specific advice for the students watching of how to pursue sustainability and ethical practices in the work that they do? Um, yeah, I mean, waste is a massive, massive um, problem. And we focus a lot on that at Stella. We just try to use up all of our waste because we don't throw away our fabrics or bury or burn them like a lot of the houses do. So we mm. sort of accumulate all these things in our warehouses. So we've just kind of gotten rid of quite a lot of waste. Um, and now I'm like, I need someone else's waste. I think thinking out of the box is a great way to start. And I think knowing that, you know, knowing that you have the the kind of goal of working that way, don't give up, like search out, you can find it. You can find great um, partners that you can be, you know, working with and learning with from, you know, Econil, they're, they're people that we get our plastic fishing nets from and they spin it and we make weave like seekers and, and bags and things. There's a lot of these companies, if you can find them, and they're really, I think they're open to working with students and encouraging. And that happened anyway, when I was young and none of this conversation was in the room, you could always go to like Premier Vision and get on a stand and say, hi, I'm a student, can I have 10 meters? And you know, those, those established brands were always pretty helpful. But I think um, getting, getting your kind of goal in place, sticking to it, not mm. giving up, like it's really, you have to fight. If you want to work this way, you've got to fight. And if you know, if you want to be in fashion now anyway, and you're 20, you've got to fight. You know, it's not going to come easy. So I also feel very proud that people feel they want to come and work with a brand like us. So I think search out the brands that, you know, if you're not going to, um, you know, establish your own brand quite yet, try and find brands that work in this way that you could go and work with. But I think you've just got to, you know, set your goals and, or one goal, just set one. And, um, you know, don't, and don't give up. Just, just go, you know, fight for it. Because if you guys don't do it, nobody's going to, you know, nobody's going to do it. Fashion Forum is a co-production between the British Fashion Council and In Talks With Productions. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends. If you'd like to find out more and join the conversation on social media, then head to londonfashionweek.co.uk or at London Fashion Week.